This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. Muck Delivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with Muck Delivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello everyone, I hope that you're doing alright and that you're not missing the football too much. Saturday afternoons are becoming a bit of a drag now, aren't they? Come on, hands up. Who else is counting down to the first pre-season friendly? Yeah, me too. Well, all throughout the back end of last season, we were talking about our Stag Stories Glory of the Amber Generation series, where we'd be looking back to the 2001-2002 campaign where the Stags last won promotion from within the Football League. Now, we postponed the series for a while because it looked like Nigel Clough's men may actually go on and achieve promotion themselves. So because of the playoffs, we pushed it back, we pushed it back, and we pushed it back. Now, though, is the time to share said content. So over the next three or four weeks or so, we're going to be sharing episodes from that series. Andy White's joining me as co-host. We're going to speak to Barry Statham. We're going to speak to Kevin Pilkington, Les Robinson. And of course, we're going to have an interview with Stags legend Chris Greenacre as well. We did actually record one more episode with Bobby Hassel, who we've had on the show before however we used a podcast recording software service which claimed to be the best in the business and then failed to record bobby's audio now unfortunately said software only recorded the audio in split tracks so it didn't give us a mixed down track which meant we could put the episode out so my audio recorded fine andy's audio recorded fine but bobby's non-existent we contacted the company to try and get the audio back from their servers it didn't exist so we were not only out of pocket but also an episode light on this series so i absolutely apologize for that and if ever you're starting up a podcast drop me a dm and i'll tell you which service to absolutely avoid like hell anyway That's enough of me rambling. We're going to get straight into the episode. All I wanted to point out before it started was that these episodes were actually recorded months ago. Uh, This particular episode was recorded on the 24th of March. So it may contain some references to the season that is ongoing. I don't want you to think that they were recorded yesterday when they were actually recorded in March. Sit back and enjoy and we'll see you for the brand new series of the Mansfield Matters podcast in a couple of weeks time. Right. Let's get on with it, shall we? Let's go back to the past and 20 years ago. They say that success is built on strong foundations. So when 20 years ago, when Stuart Watkiss took the reins of Mansfield Town's first team, a side which was full of his youth team starlets, fans dared to dream of achieving promotion. There were twists and turns along the way and it went all the way to the wire. But in the end, 
Watkiss and his side made dreams come true. Ball into the area for Kelly. Keeps possession. Drives it across the edge of the six-yard area. Cleared as far as Hassel. Back into the box it goes. And we're in front. Mansfield have it. And it's Andy White. It's absolutely nuts at field mill. Corner then. He's going to take this corner. Holds both arms aloft. The uh, referee waiting to give the signal. Williamson's on the goal line. Greenacre's near the near post. Into the area it goes. Tankard heads it goalwards. It's in. It's Andy White. Andy White's made it 2-0. And now we have a little bit of a comfort zone. The referee looks again at his watch. It's just about over. Three seconds remaining. The referee's blown and Mansfield are promoted to Division 2. Scenes of jubilation at Field Mill. This is the Mansfield Matters podcast and 20 years on, we're recalling the stories from that historic campaign with those at the heart of it all. This is Stag Stories, the glory of the Amber Generation. Well, hello and welcome to a very special Mansfield Matters podcast. This is the return of Stag Stories, a brand new series, 20 years since the Stags were promoted from what was then Division 3 into what is now League 1. And 20 years on with Nigel Clough's men looking to do the same, we thought it quite fitting to look back on that era and speak to the people involved. Joining me over the course of this series will be former Stag striker Andy White, who will act as my co-host, but first, he's got to go under the spotlight himself. He's going to be the first guest on this series. He's been on Stag Stories uh, before and shared many uh, a fantastic tale about his uh, time at the club. An infamous quote, a quid's a quid. Really enjoyed that episode. If you've not seen that whole um, episode, go and check that out because he talks about his journey from start to finish. But in this particular episode, we're going to be talking specifically about 0102, the things involved, the players involved, and the things uh, which you can look forward to over the next eight weeks or so right here on the Mansfield Matters podcast. So first and foremost, uh, let's say hello again to our old friend Andy White. How are you doing, pal? Hi, Craig. You okay, mate? I'm very good, mate. It's good to see you again and really, really good that you've decided to uh, jump on board uh, with this. We've been speaking pretty much non-stop since you did the episode with us pretty much nearly a year ago um, now and you were saying... I want to get this charity game sorted. I want to. I want to get a reunion of, of some sorts and jobs and life and stuff sort of got in the way. And we eventually sat down, sort of uh, late January time, and said, "Look, it's probably a, a, a game's probably not going to happen at this point because of where Mansfield are on the table and how much it takes to organise. But let's do something in podcast form. Let's reunite people." And you've been busy because you've got your little black book of contacts out and you've been messaging all your old teammates, all your old uh, staff and colleagues and uh, and things like that. And you've lined us up some absolute corkers haven't you yeah it's, it's nice to reconnect and you know if you, if you can't reconnect after 20 years and and have that as a, a bit of an occasion to to reminisce i know lockdown came and there was all the nice videos reminiscing and that brought back quite a few memories and it, yeah it's nice to nice to nice to do do that and um, kind of catch up with old friends and listen to those stories again yeah, it's, it's it's really fascinating. I'm really looking forward to uh, speaking to some. We've got some excellent guests uh, lined up, including uh, former physio Barry Statham, who's, who's quite a character, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Now, he, uh, all the lads love Baz, you know, and um, he, he, he supported a lot of them through some quite difficult times, if you think about an injury. Um, and with his kind of spirit and his 
dry sense of humour, gone through it. Um, and uh, yeah, we had a good laugh along the way. Yeah, and one of uh, the things to get him through was this thing called the Blue Run. Do you want to explain to us a little bit about what the uh, what the Blue Run is and uh, how that will be a recurring theme over the next uh, eight episodes or so? Yeah, it was a it was one of Baz's from his military days, um, wanting to yeah give us a bit of a test through rugged terrain, through uh, through Thieves Wood uh, in a timed way. Um, so we had to do this run through the kind of navigate the the, the blue um, signposts through Fees Wood, which is I think it's about three or four mile track all, all over various terrain. Uh, you have to get in in under twenty minutes, and if you didn't do it, you have to do it again. So uh, it, we always f- filled with fear when the blue room came out. Usually on a pre-season, it probably once a week pre-season. Um, so yeah, that was. Uh, struck fear into the into the hearts and minds of many a footballer of the Blue Run. Now, as you've been sort of reconnecting with your former teammates and staff, what conversations have you been having uh, with them? Obviously, we'll get some stories and stuff which come out on here when we get those individuals uh, on an episode. You know, the likes of Bobby Hassel, Barry Statham, as we've mentioned, Kevin Pilkington and a, a fair few others uh, as well. But what sort of memories have you guys been batting backwards and forwards uh, in the in the private chats, in the text messages and the phone calls that you've been having? Mainly about that final game of the season and the, and the night out after, to be honest, because that was a pretty pretty memorable night out. It was um, one of those rare occasions when the whole of Mansfield was just absolutely buzzing. And I think everybody you talk to, you know, all the lads... They've got really because we all stuck together as well throughout that throughout that night out, which is very quite rare as well. We're all just as a group together, having a good time and celebrating what was a, a fantastic achievement. So they're the kind of standout memories from most of the lads, really. Let's take it back uh, to the start for you. Uh, we'll come into the 0102 season in more depth uh, later on because I think that's arguably where you made your name as a stag. But let's take it back to the start for you. How did it all begin? Who was involved with bringing you uh, to the stags and, and how did it all come about? Yeah, so it was um, Barry Staven, obviously, um, Ivan Hollett as well, who we've kind of talked about, sadly passed away yesterday. Um, it was a big influence on my career as well as obviously Skip and Billy Dearden. So I played a pre-season friendly um, for Hucknall Town against the Stags. Uh, and I remember Baz coming over and shaking my hand and saying, well done. And I'm like, well, as a as a 17-year-old student at that time as I was, I was quite taken aback really in terms of the um, the feedback I was getting from the coaching staff around my performance. I think I only came on for the last 15 minutes or so. So I must have... Uh, must, must have had a, had a decent spell um, and then they came to watch me um, in another pre-season friendly for Hortonall against South Normington and after that they said oh we would like you to come and come and come and um, come and train with us for the summer and I said well great but I'm flying to Spain tomorrow so I was away for uh, I went for three, three weeks actually um, luckily back then you could get away with uh, having a few drinks every day because as a 17 year old um, but I came back and yeah, went straight into it, and it, it was a big old, big old transition for me. You know, training every day with the first team as I did back then as a seventeen-year-old. So obviously the youth team were training as well, but I trained with the first team back then, and that was a massive baptism of fire for me in terms of you know the possession drills, um, feeling as though even when you give the ball away in the possession drill, I kind of beat myself up a little bit into but it's a it was a big part of that you know growing up as a footballer if you like that that six weeks 
that as um, you know training every day, which and I, I loved it. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. What swung it for you in terms of signing for Mansfield? Because I know um, from our previous chats privately that you know you had. Um, a tough decision to make because when you were playing for, for the likes of Huckle as well, the, the money the difference wasn't as vast as what people may have thought it it, it would have been. No. Um, I mean, I I always felt, you know, I'd do my levels, go on to be a PE teacher and, and go down that route um, as my career. And then all of a sudden, I'd always dreamt of being a professional footballer, but never felt it was going to happen. So I'd kind of parked that dream to one side. And this journey with Mansfield, I realised, yeah, it's great, but I, d- I didn't really see anything coming of it. Um, and then when I got the opportunity, I can remember vividly Billy Deed and pulling him into his office um, saying, look, lad, there's a, there's a professional contract here at the end of your A-levels. Um, and it was a case of, right, well, what have I got to lose? You know, I'm going to live my dream for a year at least, even if it is only only short term, but I'm going to say that I've been a professional footballer. So, yeah, I can remember the journey home with my dad uh, after we'd signed, and I was on absolute cloud nine. It was like all my dreams had come true, really. Yeah, I can uh, I can imagine it was a, a good time. I think it's always that dream, isn't it, to play for, uh, for your local club and things like that. Now, I know you're a massive uh, Derby fan uh, as well, um, I know that that's a passion of yours as well. But how much was Mansfield uh, on your radar when you were a, when you were a youngster? Because obviously you were playing for a few local non-league teams, and Mansfield cropped up on your radar at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, I was playing for yeah local Sunday side Adask, and um, I had a chance of either going to Chesterfield or going to Mansfield as an under, under sixteen. And I don't know what, I think it might have been you got a tracksuit at Chesterfield or something like that. So I went down where you got a tracksuit, uh, to be honest. Um, I played for Chesterfield for a year, under 15s, under 16s. And then, um, again, got released from them as a 16-year-old. And if you talk about the highest you know, point of, as a journey of signing professional, well, being released by Chesterfield was, was probably my lowest. And, and again, a vivid journey home from Chesterfield College, I think we trained back then. And that was that was really really kind of as a sixteen year old, you know, my, that I felt my dream had gone back then. So again, just wasn't on my radar to to go and pick up um, at Mansfield, um, and yeah, luckily kind of stumbled across it. I think it highlights uh, the fact that Chesterfield know very little about football, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, you you could look at it in two ways, really. Uh, one one that they knew what they were doing, or or another that yeah. They'd let, they'd let one go, but yeah. Now I enjoy my time as a professional footballer um, and, you know, I've had experiences. You know, I still play now for veterans and obviously I'm uh, not not as agile as, as I used to be, let's put it like that. And, and even through my kind of non-league playing days at Sutton and, you know, I've played for Renneth and all. Oh, I used to get loads and loads of assholes, you know, you you're not very good in, in not so certain terms and all that. But I just turned around to them and said, look, I've, do, I've done what I've done. I've played professional football and there's not many people who can say that. And I can say to my little lad that I was a professional footballer. So that's good enough for me. What about nowadays in the here and now? Because we speak to, to many people that go down different routes. You know, Bobby Hassel's in the academy at Barnsley leading that. Um, Liam Lawrence, for, for another example, for a player that was in your sort of... Uh, your era, your team, that particular team as well has gone into into media in, in some parts as well. Others have dropped off the radar completely and, and gone down different channels. What about you? What are you doing uh, post-football? 
Yeah, so when I was at back end of my career, um, we had the PFA come in to talk about um, a degree course that they were running for for the for, for footballers. Um, so I signed up to that when I was at Notts County, and that was a two-year part-time degree course in um, professional sports writing and broadcasting. Um, and that was all full of footballers. You know, A.D. Moses was on that, um, Scott Minto, Lee Bullock. So it was basically just like being in a dressing room, but in a, in a university. And again, after training on a Monday and Thursday, we used to go to Staffordshire University at Stoke, just have a laugh, you know, every Thursday. And um, it was a two-year course, all fully funded through the PFA. And I got a degree at the end of it. And I knew, not necessarily I wanted to go into journalism, but I knew that I needed a degree to progress in whatever career I wanted to go down. I knew definitely I didn't want to stay into football. Um, so I wanted to get out of football. But yeah, I uh, did my degree and uh, I progressed in the world of uh, public health. Um, so help you know support projects around um, childhood obesity, health improvement, Sure Start, early years, um, mainly Nottinghamshire as well. So I've done a lot of my work in Nottinghamshire, and recently transitioned over to uh, where I live in Derbyshire and Derby. Yeah, I find it interesting that you you mentioned in there that you knew that you wanted to get out of football. What what sort of made made you make that decision? Was it the fact that um, you dropped down a couple of divisions, or did you just sort of run its course? Like I think most things in life naturally do yeah i think it's that security you know I, I, I need that security for myself really i need to know where that next kind of paycheck's coming from i know that you know if i twist my knee and become injured i'm not relying on that whereas in football you are you know one twist of a knee and that's you done and i didn't want to live my life like that um i didn't want to live my life constantly looking over my shoulder thinking about, oh, am I going to get sacked as a coach? Am I going to get sacked as a footballer or released? I just wanted that stability. Um, and that's how I wanted to, you know, take my career and take my life, really, which is which is what I did. Um, and also, you know, it's a dog-eat-dog world in, in, in professional football. Um, everybody's after your, your job, if you like, your contract, your place. Um, and that just wasn't the environment for me. I want to be in, like, a nice nurturing environment which I've kind of found myself in yeah it's a it's an interesting one and you mentioned in that the PFA as well and I was listening to um Ben Foster the Watford goalkeepers podcast the the Fozcast the other week and he had the uh, the current uh, head of the PFA on there and was sort of explaining how it all worked and I think there's this perception sometimes from football supporters that the PFA mainly work with top flight players but he was sort of explaining that no, it runs all the way down to, to League Two and uh, quite a majority in in the non-league as well. Was it the was that the case when you were a player, or has it evolved since then? No, it was definitely the case. You know, you are a professional footballer, and you are part of that kind of union. You're part of that, you know, for the rest of your life, really. Um, and obviously, the opportunity to do a degree where you could be paying what fifteen, twenty grand in terms of debt. You know, you got your accommodation on top of that. Well, I got my degree for free, um, which was funded through the PFA. I think I paid a little bit, but only about 500, you know, a grand, something like that. So I got a cheap degree, in effect, uh, that's now on my CV, and I've got that for life. And also, since kind of quitting football, whenever you've got any kind of niggling injuries, you know, I've had a, a bit of a problem with my knee about five years ago. Um, contacted them a week later, straight to an MRI scan, private private hospital injection I needed back then and that was sorted um, and, I'm, and I'm just about due for another one so I need to give him another call. 
Yeah, well, uh, we definitely wish you all the best with that. And uh, is that something which you feared when you became a, a, a footballer, when you were first starting out on your, your journey? Because it's it's not necessarily something which I think footballers, young footballers, you know, that are coming through academies and, and things like that necessarily know about that protection within the game. They're just hungry to, to play, aren't they? But they've, they've got to take care of that sort of things. And it's one of those sort of maybe hidden things which, people within the game don't necessarily talk about yeah i mean to be honest as a young you know 19 20 21 it never really crosses your mind because you think you're invincible don't you um and you know you you never think it's going to happen to you so it was never something on my mind i think one thing that was on my mind was the kind of longevity of football and professional football and i knew that i needed to get something under my belt pretty quick in terms of something a bit longer term which is why I, I, I did the degree course at you know I think I was 25 at the time um, rather than waiting till I was in my 30s because I probably had a bit of an inkling that I was on a bit of a downward slope from uh, Notts County so um, I, I made that decision and it turned out to be the right one in fact I went um, I went over to Baseford College because I was going to look at doing a, um, a tiling course uh, start my own tiling business um, Tyler White, I was going to call him. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's uh, that's that's trademark that name, so I might use that again. But <laughs> no, I, I kind of I had a conversation with some of the tutors there, and I felt mm, I'm more of a kind of white collar worker than a, than a you know than a proper grafter. I don't think I've quite got the patience to be a Tyler, which is why I went down the more academic route. It's funny that, and I, I, I think that that's quite a thing that some footballers perhaps don't think about either about the different routes but one thing which they were saying in in that particular episode and one thing which has certainly made me think is is there actually a a variety of paths which the the PFA offer or was it literally just here's some routes within football because it's post-playing it's actually quite a niche thing to, to get into really there's only probably two mainstream routes you can go if you want to stay within the game and that's either the coaching route or the media route this was the first degree of its kind for for the PFA you know a standalone professional football association funded course full of footballers um as a you know as a degree so yes it was down the kind of media route if you like as a you know to give them some kind of give us some kind of training to go into that area whether it be you know, like Scott Minto hosting a Sky Sports show, for instance, or some of the other lads just did some co-commentating, or Adi Moses did a little bit of kind of side stuff um, around um, co-commentating as well. So, yeah, it just gives you a bit of a bit of a structure to, um, to to how you how you come across on the radio or on the telly, um, and maybe even you know turn it into some kind of job. So, yeah, that was the first of its kind. If you were to go into a dressing room now, a young dressing room, say of uh, I don't know the the under twenty ones or under under nineteens, and sort of say to them, you know, this is my career path. This is this is there, there's a bigger, wider world out there for those of you that don't make it. What would what would you say, and and how do you think they'd uh, respond to that, given the way that the games change now? Um, I try my best to convince them to start taking it seriously now and not wait, you know, in terms of getting some kind of qualification behind. You know, nowadays they are very good in terms of ensuring that anybody through the youth team, they're always studying for a course. And I know even back then there were, um, even some of our youth team lads uh, did kind of sports sports science, kind of A-levels, 
uh, while studying and, and we're even better now in terms of making sure that that is the bread and butter and this constantly drilling into them that you know not, not many make a, a career whereby you don't have to work again so it's all there um, I try my best to kind of just purvey some of my experiences really and you know if you think about when I my last kicking professional football was at Wembley Stadium in front of 55,000 people the Monday after I was in a I was in an explosives factory packing explosives um, and that's how that's how quickly it turned for me but I knew that I needed to do that you know I knew that professional football wasn't going to last forever I took that decision at Kidderminster right that's enough I'm going to go and play non-league I'm going to get a job and build my career away from football. And it was difficult, you know, getting up at half past five in the morning when you're used to strolling out of bed at half nine and going to training at ten. Well, I'm now having start at six and I'm doing a really monotonous job from six o'clock till four o'clock with very little breaks. Then after that, I'm getting in my car, I'm travelling up to workshop to, to go training, maybe have a game and you'd get back at one, two o'clock in the morning if we, you know, wet Colwyn Bay, for instance, and I'm back the next day doing it. But I was, hap- I was happy because I knew that I needed to build for that next phase in my life, uh, even though it was tough. I know you mentioned that there were some murmurings of sort of like college courses and stuff when you started in, in YTS, but it was very, very rare. Whereas you look at the uh, structure now and pretty much every um, youth team they do minimum uh, a BTEC qualification so at least these players who are coming through and don't manage to, to make it because if we're completely honest the percentage of players that will come through a particular group is only maybe I wouldn't even probably say higher than 1% in terms of those who go on and make it pro as a, as a full-time career and then you times that by the 92 clubs or whatever and even those lower down in non-league who've all got these setups. Would you rather be, if you could have your time again and pick the two eras where you went in as a youth team player, you follow exactly the same career path, would you go in now where there's a guaranteed qualification and it's set up in this model where it's um, a mixture between education, coaching badges and all of that at a young age, or would you go back in where you did start and where you did grow in and sort of you know graft like you did alongside the, the lads that you were with at the time? To be honest... I'd probably go the way I went in terms of, you know, having that real football education because that what the, the, the main emphasis was on the football. Whereas now, I know there's quite a lot of funding out there to kind of dangle that carrot to come onto this course. You know, you can play football every day, but you're still studying. Whereas back then, you knew that you were in that youth team because you, 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 you were worthy of that position, if you like. Because you, your your footballing ability got you there, um, and you were around proper footballing people. You know, we used to do jobs back then, and you know, sweep the changing room, sweep the stadium. Um, it was like a proper nine to five kind of upbringing. Whereas now, I think it's a bit. They are quite protected from that, if you like, and um, that was a real um, eye opener for myself. But it made you into, for want of a better term, you know. A man, it helped you grow up. It helped you to transition to the big bad world because it's not easy out there, you know, for for anyone really. Uh, but as a professional footballer, as a young seventeen-year-old, you need to make that transition pretty quick, and that really did help me. I find that quite interesting because you know, like you say, it has changed a lot, and you wouldn't get away with half of the stuff um, that you did then, which now you wouldn't get away with it at all. I mean, 
even some things as silly as like initiations to make you feel part of the team, cleaning the changing rooms, washing somebody's boots, that sort of thing. It's just not happened because it, it, it changes and does make you make you wonder actually about, you know, you look at some of the, the coaches who were so successful in, in that era um, and, and if they were to try and get in there now, their approach just just wouldn't work because it's a different it's a different game and I think you're seeing that in up and up and down the game now some of those older managers who had that thing of youth team players need to help out sweep the dressing room etc it, it just doesn't work now in the modern game does it and I think that's a bit of a shame actually it is yeah yeah because yeah players are protected now so um, there's less kind of resilience in the game and to be able to succeed in the game, you need resilience. You know, I talked about the setbacks I had from Chesterfield. That builds you as a person in terms of having those setbacks. And it shows you as a character to kind of pick yourself up and, and go again. And at the minute, you know, in this day and age, if they get a bit of a setback, a bit of a knock, that's it, they're gone. You know, you don't see them again, which is a shame because there's a quite a few talented footballers, no doubt, who have kind of had that knock back and just thought, oh, I'm not going to bother anymore, you know. So, um, yeah, it is. Um, the game's moved on an awful lot. You know, you think about it, it's 20 years ago since mm. since we started out and the game has moved on massively. Um, some some parts of the better, some not so much, but I definitely think that kind of youth team initiation and upbringing, you know, valuing what it's like to actually earn your money for a living is lost nowadays. I'm not for a second saying that it's, it, it's a... Uh, thing which is uh, a, a negative but I think it's interesting to think about think about that and sort of say maybe it's gone the the other two way and it, it the other way a little bit it is a little bit overprotective because like you say it is all about character building and strength building I think that's what brings me nicely back to you know talking about this this fantastic 20 year anniversary of this promotion because these this was a group of players who had all you know learnt together and grown together they weren't picked up from transfer markets and you know built together over one season and, and brought together a squad and, and gelled over a season they were gelled and and, and built and, and grown and developed over a long period of time oh yeah yeah we um we, we yeah right from kind of 98 through to to, to the promotion season in 0102 you know took four or five years and even before that you know Bobby Assel's probably a year older than me. Diz is a year older. Um, players like Danny Bacon as well. Um, we all, we all came through together. We had that same upbringing, that consistency from you know from Skip, from Ivan, from Baz. Then transitioned through to, to kind of Billy and the first team. And yeah, we just we just went through together as good good friends, good mates, but also um, knowing each other's game as well, which which really does help in terms of. Um, yeah, form forming um, a, a consistent side. So realistically, this promotion which we won back in oh one oh two, the foundations of which were probably laid in the the late nineties. Absolutely, yeah. And you think about um, the journey we went on in the FA Youth Cup with that bunch of players. You know, getting to the quarterfinals as a as a League Two team was it back then or third division team? It's unheard of for a for a third division team to get through to the quarterfinals of the FA Youth Cup. So yeah, it was definitely the signs were there in the in the late nineties, and obviously um, Skip and Billy kind of took that on in terms of uh, where we got to with a promotion. 
Let's talk about um, some of that uh, the transition. And we sort of mentioned that it doesn't happen nowadays in terms of like initiations and, and the jobs which you had to do. What was your initiation? How did you get taken into uh, to the first team? Well, luckily, I kind of slipped in through the back door, if you like, because obviously I was still doing my A-levels and I was only playing on a part-time basis. I only used to turn up for games. I never used to train because obviously the, the other boys were kind of full-time uh, training um, and I never did that because I was, at, I was at school. I was at sixth form. So I just used to turn up on a Saturday, um, play the youth team games on a Saturday and then the evening FA Youth Cup games. So it was almost like I was just kind of, yeah, slipped in through the back door without having to do initiation. But I know when I became a professional and the other youth team lads came in, basically used to chuck a couple of pairs of um, boxing gloves on the on the changing room floor. And we used to have to box. We used to have to literally fight each other <coughs> until, until knockout, more or less. Um, so it was pretty brutal back then. In turn, and I've seen some brutal fights, but that was part of the... That was part of the growing up, and that's part of the transition from, you know, um, coming out of school and into a youth team. So I, I got away with, with initiation, but I saw many initiation from some of the other lads coming through. If you had to uh, get involved in that, say you walked into the changing rooms and the, the gloves were on the floor, and they're saying, "Right, come on, it, it's time." First and foremost, who would you have hated to have seen over the opposite side of the room putting the gloves on? Bobby Astle, <laughs> without a doubt. Bobby was. I think he did a bit of boxing in his time, and he was a he was he was he was a real kind of yeah a, t- a tough character, um, a, a, a real experience. Obviously, boxer, but very aggressive. So I would not allow it to come up against Bobby. And if on if we're going to go the flip side, who would you have fancied your chances against? I don't know. It probably would have been. Um, Jamie Clark, let's say. Me and, me and Clark could go back a long way. And me and him are pr- pretty similar in terms of being quite laid back. So I can see us just standing there with his gloves on, not really lo- landing a blow and just like, yeah, letting the world go by, if you like. What's the worst initiation that you've seen that you've sort of stood back and thought, I wouldn't have liked to have got involved with that? Aside from the, the boxing, what's one of the worst ones that you've, uh, that you've seen? I don't really... Like I say, you know that that day of I know I know nowadays obviously we get them up on the uh, on the table and the pre-match meal with the kind of microphone and and cracking on and you know saw a few dodgy karaoke performances in um, in in Villamora when we when we went there after losing to Leicester in the FA Cup so there's some some howling karaoke performances that I've seen in my time um, and quite inebriated ones as well. Throw me a few names under the bus. Who was who? Who would you, uh, if once the 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 glass was, they used to get the the little glass, didn't they? Tap on the glass with a fork, yeah. and, and then present someone with like a spoon or something. Who would you turn around to your teammates and go, Christ, cover your ears? <laughs> Alan Tankard weren't the greatest singer, um, uh, and he, he used to howl away. But I tell you, it was a good one. Uh, Martin Pemberton Pembo, he was um, he was a class singer. Uh, yeah. Real silky voice in our in the in the clubs of Villamora. Uh, let's delve into that season then. It sounds like it was a, a great dressing room and a real good atmosphere to to be around. And obviously, as the season progressed, there was ups, there was downs, but in the end, it it did achieve 
uh, that success. At what point in that season did you t- did you know in your heart of hearts that actually something could something special could happen here? Well, I think to be honest, it was even before that. You know, we knew that we had this cohort of players. I think Skip recognised that we had a cohort of players who he could really kind of build a promotion-winning team. Uh, you know, you've got Liam Lawrence, Lee Williamson, you've got Craig Disley, um, you, you've got Ali Asher back then, obviously Bobby Hassel. Um, you know, many, a real good core of players who you could build a team around. So, for me, it was it was even before the start of that season. It was just a case of how we would all transition into first-team football because it is a big step from youth team into, into first-team. But I think that's how Skip and Billy did a really good job in terms of, you know, um, 2001, you know, testing the water every now and again. Some going at faster pace than others. So, Liam went into the team pretty much straight away and took to it like a duck to water. Whereas myself... Um, in my uh, 2001 team, uh, I think I made one substitute appearance against Southend, so my time came a bit later. But then, I think I started that that promotion season away at Hartlepool, um, and I played play the first ten games. I started the first ten games, um, so that was my kind of transition into 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 first team football, which I kind of really enjoyed. And then fell off the radar a little bit in terms of the first team. But again, I was only a young lad still. Um, bitten and bobbing with kind of substitute appearances um, and then again got back in the team in for the running so yeah it was uh, something that we we all knew was there in terms of that potential it was just about fulfilling that potential and it just all came together nicely in that last season. Now I've, as I'll mention a number of times over this little series this was really the first time that I started watching football so I can't really remember too much uh, about it so I'm going to be relying on you for uh, a lot of the memories and a lot of the uh, the stats and the games which I'm sure you'll uh, you'll be perfect with um, with doing that but um, how old were you when this season was kicking off because um, you know I was only sort of uh, 11 years old when uh, when this this season was happening I only really getting into football for the first time but how old were, were you when you were when, when you were out there playing when this season begun? Uh, so I was 19 when it first started um, and yeah as a 19 as year old you think you're invincible you know you don't really think about confidence really doesn't come into it that much because you're a young lad just go out there and you play your football so very little pressure in terms of you know still living at home mum and dad paying £10 a week board or whatever it was so there's no real pressure in terms of uh, paying a mortgage or anything so yeah you just yeah, a bit, yeah, just go out there and do what you needed to do um, with your mates every day. <laughs> and when you strip that back, you know, you said yourself, you, you're a teenager, you're 19 years of age, um, and you look at the other players in there as well, they must have been similar ages. Yeah, yeah, so Liam, Liam was 19, but we're all, saying, we're all, yeah, 81, 82, we were, we were born, me, Lee, Liam, um, obviously Bobby's a, a year older, Diz is a year older. So they, they were probably 20. So you, you probably got half a dozen players at 19, 20 in that team, which is, you know, unbelievable, really, if you think about it. Yeah, it's a huge achievement when you strip it back to, to go on and for such a young squad to, to go all the way as they did. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. But it just shows you the quality of player that, that we had in terms of, um, you know, what they've gone on to achieve since 
played for Mansfield as well in terms, you know, Liam, international footballer, um, Bobby, consistent championship player, Diz, championship, um, Lee Williamson, Premier League, Liam, Premier League, you know, it's it's all there. Yeah, it is. It, it's such a... It's, it must be such a proud thing as well when you look at that because you've watched these lads grow and now, you know, you're watching them go off and do all these fantastic things. It, it must fill you with so much pride to have seen these because one thing I, I know for certain is that, you know, once you, you, you finished your Stag's career and that squad sort of began to dissolve and things like that, whilst you might have gone your separate ways in terms of career-wise, you guys all remained in contact, remained friends. It, it, it wasn't just oh, we were this team, you were friends. You were like a massive family. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we grew up together, you know. We, you know, we, Our formative years were spent playing football together. Um, and obviously, when we did go on to play at kind of higher levels, uh, I can remember playing against Liam when he was at Sunderland and I was at Crewe in the Championship. Um, I can remember playing against Christian Greenacre when he was at Stoke and I was at Crewe. So even in at that championship level, our paths, you know, still cross, if you like, when we were playing at that higher level, um, two or three years after the, the promotion. Now let's give some credit to those who were behind the scenes as well. So like we said, the seeds for this promotion started to be sown sort of late nineties. It would have been Stuart Watkins then who was in charge of the youth team, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, skip. Yeah, who else was involved with, with that youth team setup then? Uh, so obviously Ivan. Um, did did a lot of the yeah supportive in terms of uh, training sessions. Uh, Bas Stavem uh, and then uh, Neil Richardson kind of came along when Skip got the first team job, took over the U team. So that was really the cohort. Um, and there's another physio Craig as well who who helped out. Um, so yeah, that was that was a kind of backroom team back then, believe it or not. And Billy did, and you know, big hats off to Billy really for from my perspective in terms of give me that chance in professional football um giving me an opportunity to to, to um, play first team football he took a big gamble on me really on that promotion season to put me as a 19 year old having only played probably half a game for south against south end straight into the starting lineup at hartlepool away on the opening day of the season of that 0102 season yeah it's it's quite incredible to think about that how was Billy with you and, and what was the, the the gap like because you talk to some young players now and they say oh we get nowhere near the, the first team we don't train on the same pitch we don't even train at the same venue sometimes we barely see the first team players you know because there's not that interaction there's a, a, a golfing level you know you, you think about players who are similar ages actually now I'm thinking of actually a couple within the current Stags uh, setup. You know they're not thrown into to League Two action. They're sent out for two or three seasons to develop at Conference National, Conference North, and maybe even below that in some cases as well. So, what was it like then in terms of the structure of the club, the relationship between Skip and the youth team, and Skip's youth team, and and, and the first team at the time, sort of late nineties, early noughties? Um, it was pretty clear cut, really, in terms of back then you do your two year YTS from kind of sixteen to eighteen. That's your yeah, about four formative years, um, and then as soon as you reach that eighteen, you either become a professional footballer or you don't. Um, and when we went on to become, you know, sign professional contracts, that was the time we would with the first team, and there were no kind of, you know. Uh, under 21s, under 23s, whatever. Um, so 
yeah, it's just a case of um, straight into the, the, the first team, training with the first team. That helps you de- develop, you know. You're playing with better players. You're playing with, with um, that that intensity um, every single day. helps you develop. Um, so that certainly helped the development of, of, of myself, but also obviously the young players who are coming through together. I think it's quite interesting that you mentioned that, like you know, that transition was there, and it was uh, it was an easier transition than what than what it is nowadays. What was the staff like as a as individuals? Because what I find interesting is the dynamic between backroom staff. Sometimes you've got good cop, bad cop, and you've got the. The, the the sort of the kind uncle figure that will look after you, the big brother, that that sort of thing. If you could break down the the Mansfield staff at, at that time, right from the top of, of Bill Deard and right to uh, the, the coaches and the staff behind the scenes, who played what role and and how key was that to the success which you guys had in terms of transitioning from that youth team period into that first team environment? Yeah, I mean, obviously. Um... When, when we got into the first team, Skip was uh, assistant manager and it helped because he was our youth team manager right through, um, you know, 98 through to 2000. So there was that consistency there for us because we knew his kind of training methods. We knew how he wanted, you know, his teams to perform. Um, we were used to the kind of sessions that he used to put on because they were really intense as well because Skip wanted us to to kind of train how he played. So there was no let-up in terms of possession drills. He wanted you to play, to train exactly how you played. And we knew that. We we knew, you know, you had players coming in from, from elsewhere, some experienced pros who weren't used to training to such a high intensity. Come many a time we used to go on that Astro. And I'm not joking, we used to ping ball. It was absolutely zipping on that Astro turf. You know, the old school... 1G or whatever it is, oh. it was absolutely sand based, terrible, wasn't it? That Astro. I mean, it got, I remember it got ripped up years ago now, and there's more of a 3G one down there. But I remember playing on it as a, as a kid, and because uh, it was outside the stadium, it was absolutely horrendous. So I can't imagine what it would have been like to, to train on. Yeah, but you know, the lads didn't care if that's what they were used to, you know, that's what Skip brought them up on, and that's how they got the intensity. I, I firmly believe that AstroTurf was one of the main reasons that the players developed so quickly. And we, you know, because your first touch has to be like that because it used to zip off, so you needed to kill that ball absolutely dead. So, in terms of helping you develop, it, it can it can be attributed to, to quite a bit of Mansfield success, really, from, from that perspective. You know, it wasn't nice. We used to come off and we used to have big grazers all down his legs, friction burns, but we didn't care, you know. We we, lo- we we absolutely loved playing and training at that intensity. So, yeah, Skip was obviously, he kind of t- t- tactically, technically, um, we're, we're kind of leading the ship, whereas Billy was that kind of man-manager he was the one who wanted to get to know the players on a personal level um, and talk to them, you know, as a human being, which he did often. You know, he used to pull the young lads to one side every now and again during training sessions and say, look, you know, um, I think it might be useful for you to go out on loan or to, you know, to have a bit of time away and really kind of look after you as a young person going into professional football. So that, that was his role. And again, you know, Baz was kind of trying to drive you forward in terms of, uh, yeah, prevention in terms of your injuries, but also developing you physically, 
Um, I must say as well, Mark Kearney, in terms of um, his sessions um, in an afternoon for the young lads as well, for, from a technical perspective, you know, little volleys, um, working on your first touch. You used to do a lot of work with us and just the young lads um, as young pros after um, to, to, to work on our kind of technical ability. And that's, that's really how we, how we kind of developed um, so quickly because of the time and the dedication from um, all of the coaching staff. We've got a common link there. When I was in, I think it was year nine or maybe year 10, um, I was actually in the same tutor group as Mark's lad, um, Lewis. Um, okay. Good lad. And uh, for a year or so, uh, Joe Whit School uh, in Renneth, um, it, got a, it got a grant to become like a sports college. It had this nice 3G built on it, a brand new sort of sports hall brought in. And I think Mark uh, was brought in as like football director or something. And he used to take all the PE and PE lessons never used to sort of excite me. I used to hate PE. I mean, I used to hate football as well. And mm. I always remember going out on, on a PE, this one particular PE session um, when I was starting to go to Stags games more, I was really, really enjoying it. Um, like the likes of Pilks and Macca were my heroes and, and things like that. And I wanted to be them. And I remember walking out to this PE session and seeing this session set up and thought, wow, this looks, yeah. this looks really good. I really want to be involved um, in that. And, uh, even though I was honestly, hand on heart, the worst footballer within that particular group, didn't matter to him because he took the time and sort of said, you know, try it this way, try it that way. And just because you wasn't the best didn't mean that he ignored you and it didn't mean that he cast you aside. He still had the same amount of time for you. And I think that's really a key thing. So I can imagine actually being a, a player in that youth team setup or a young player that's breaking into the first team to go out to a session like that to, you know, be mentored by an ex-player at the club and someone who was a bit of a legend at the club as well. That must have been a, a real lift for you because it, it, it had a real impact on me in one lesson. And we talked yeah. about one lesson at school. I remember it forever. But to have that on an almost daily basis, wow. Mm. Yeah, no, and, and you could tell he was really passionate about developing young players and he could see, um, yeah, the way in which each individual could develop as well. I remember one time I was playing a reserve game for Halifax and, um, you know, I wasn't the most confident of, of young lads, so I kind of won this penalty and um, I, I was, you know, I grabbed the ball and I kind of chucked it to one of the other lads to, you know, you take the penalty kind of thing. And he picked the ball up came over and he kind of rammed it in my stomach he says Andy you're a centre forward you take it and I took it scored um, so it was that having that kind of yeah somebody to give you a bit more confidence really as well so he, he yeah I always forget about Mark Kearney in terms of the role he played but he was a real massive influence on, on us all kind of how we developed technically yeah he always one other memory I've got of that same session as well at the end um, we had uh, the balls on the edge of the edge of the D, edge of the penalty area, and he said, "Right, um, if you you know if you hit the crossbar, you, you you go in, you get changed, you you finish your session early or whatever, and sort of you know the, like the last one it wasn't really a punishment, but the last one to hit it had to sort of like do a like press ups or or something like or detention or some sort of I don't know, not not nothing in a negative light, but sort of that thing of there was a, the carrot of wanting to do well and." I couldn't lift a football for the, the life of me off, off the ground. I was literally woeful. But I remember putting the ball on the ground and he sort of looked over me as, as if to say, you can do it, you can, you can do yeah. it. Um, and all the other people in, in the class 
bullied me on a regular basis and there was something in me which I wanted to show them that I could do it but also for him I wanted to to do it to show that I'd been listening to show that I, I'd taken on board the technique and never forget it pinged it first time happy days never done it bef since before or since pinged it first time and I, I was absolutely buzzing and yeah. I, yeah that'll stay with me forever but I think you've got a, a huge point as much as we talk about you know the likes of Skip and Billy and, and Baz those are the players, those ex-pros that were that were there. They deserve as much of a mention as well because yeah. they helped that schooling. And even whether it's a coach that has an impact on you for one session or a coach that has an impact on you for life, it makes a difference. And it's those Adam Murray used to say, you know, when I, when he was a manager, it's those little one percents which make the difference. And he's absolutely spot on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and. Um... Yeah, I can remember. I can remember the little games that Mark Kearney used to set up. You talk about those little games where you're under a bit of pressure, but that brings it out of you. You know, you set these little, little games up where you split into kind of two groups of ten, and you'd have to kind of run out, dribble through the cones, kick it up, head it, come back, give it to your next mate like a relay. And you knew if you, you let your team down, then you'd be second, and you'd have to do a forfeit. So you wanted to make sure that you didn't, you know, mess up. So that sort of pressure helped you to develop as a player and to handle you know the pressure of six thousand people yeah I, I, I absolutely love little things like that i think it, it really goes unnoticed and, and sometimes the the influence of a coach and those in the back room can go unnoticed because the goal scorer will take the credit the uh the goalkeeper if he's made a, a good save sometimes will, will, will take the credit the manager will, will take the credit for a, a substitution made at the the right time but you know you, you sort of strip it back and actually you think about you know it's, it's not just about one moment it's about the work and stuff which goes into it which I think is a, a really key thing let's move on a little bit and, and talk about some of the the players we, we had in there you mentioned the relationship between Bill Dearden and, and Skip and obviously Bill was the, the manager at the start of that campaign but left um, in, in January to, to go to, to Notts County usually when a manager of his stature leaves, it can rock the boat slightly. But the one thing which I, I, I've gained from speaking to you on air, off air, and to other players and, and coaches uh, at the time was because of the work that had gone in and, and the progression under Skip, the only fear was that he wouldn't get the job. Yeah, but I, I, I can't even remember of there being a kind of a limbo land, if you like, from Billy Le leaving to skip taking over. I think it was actually um, Billy who told everybody that was leaving on, at that game. I think he might have told us after the Leicester game at Filbert Street, mm. third round of the FA Cup. Um, we'd, we, we'd, done, we'd done well. I think we lost 2-1. I think we took about 3,500 Mansfield fans. And it was after the game, sat down, like lads, um, I've had an opportunity to go to Knox County, which I'm going to take. Uh, but, Skip's going to take over as manager and that was as simple as it was we're going to send you off to East Midlands Airport tomorrow morning you know pack your stuff tell your missus that you're going away for a few days you're going to Portugal get away from all of the uh, hoo-ha that's going to come 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 our way and again that was Billy to a T you know get yourself out of uh, out of this environment get away to a, to a nice sunny environment play a couple of games play a couple of rounds of golf and just ignore everything else, and it just yeah, such an easy transition from Billy leaving, which was a big miss, 
but you know, Skip taking over had that consistency. It was his way of playing. You know, he'd he'd start the ball rolling right in the very early days of that season in terms of how he wanted the team to set up. So no real change from that perspective. It was just Billy had moved on to 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 Medellin. Yeah, there's two things that I pick up from that. The first, um, we won't dwell on too much. And I, I think that's what you said about skip it was skip's way of playing it was him which influenced it billy was just that the the extra man there the man manager the one that would uh, put the arm around and you know make the little tactical tweaks here and there but it was very much skip's oh what's the word i'm looking for it it was his dna if you like which would been sort of blood from the 90s with that u team all the way way through which made that transition natural but the other thing was something which is the first time i've heard it i know you've spoken about going abroad at that after that Leicester game a few times, but it's the first time I've heard you sort of say, you know, Billy came across and sort of said, you, "You're going away." Who orchestrated that break? Who whose decision was it to say, "You need to get away from the, the storm"? What what's coming? Off you go, come back and, and keep your your focus. Who orchestrated that? It must have been Keith Haslam, to be fair, because I know he was quite a uh, he was quite fond of his little joints over to Portugal. I think he had a place over there. Um, so it, there must have been some kind of thinking behind, right? Yeah, let's take him away. Let's all because I mean the games are already organised. We were playing two Portugal teams, mate. You can't organise a game within a week, can you? So it must they must have t- t- taken some you know strategic foresight to know right that week we're going to have to be in Portugal. We have to organise these games. We have to organise hotels. We have to organise flights. We have to organise um, transfers. So. Yeah, it must have took some planning, even though all we knew about it was after that final whistle went at Filbert Street. So I'm just having, yeah. I'm just having a look at the the calendar and trying to think about fitting this in. So the Leicester game was the fifth of January. Um, obviously, two one defeat. Chrissy Greenacre on the score sheet, expected, but a great performance and one which lives long in the memory of the Stags fans. And the next game after that, according to my records, was would on the twelfth of Jan and an away trip to South End. So to fit two games in, in effectively maybe what, just over a week and an away trip mm. and all of that, that's yeah, like you say, some organizing, but also mental to think about it because if if fans got wind of that now, they'd be absolute <laughs> uproar. I know, I know. Normally you you only get um um a week away when there's an international break and you don't get them many of them in League One and League Two. So yeah, to sneak a, a cheeky few days away to Portugal Within uh, the space of a week is is pretty is is some going and it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't let's call it a working break if you like it was very much a break break yeah we did have a couple of games in there but I'll be honest I can't even I, I wasn't fit enough to, to to kick a football on some occasions when we were trying to play football never never mind compete against the Portuguese third division side. <laughs> do, you know, do you know if the fans knew at all? I don't know. It must have been. No, I don't I don't think they even did, you know. Because it... obviously, I know I know now you get a bit of a following, don't you, when you're mm. going abroad, but there's none of that. Yeah, I mean, I think social media plays a massive part in that now. And obviously back then, oh, not... it didn't exist, did it? It was the old Nokia <laughs> 3310 and playing Snake 2 on the, uh, on the, yeah. on the, on the plane. I don't think... I, oh, I think, I think we had Stagnet back then. That about it. Oh, Christ. We won't go there. <laughs> we won't go there. But uh, I can't. No, I don't know. I mean, I'm just trying to think now. Obviously, there's comparisons between the current squad we've got and that squad. And had 
Nigel Clough taking his side away after the Middlesbrough game, the FA Cup game, and for a cheeky couple of weeks in Portugal. It had been all over Instagram, it had been all over Twitter, social media. There'd been no hiding it. There'd been absolute uproar. But I guess yeah. that, that they were the times. It, it's absolutely different times. But from a mentality perspective, you mentioned there about Billy sort of saying, you know, we've got this trip organised, off you go, good luck, get your heads down. Did that help to, to, to make that? Because I think had you stayed in the UK, you were obviously taken away for a purpose and that was to avoid the uproar because Billy going to Notts County, it's not like going to um, a crew or a stoke where there's, n- there's no real history, there's no real rivalry. It literally is going to a rival and, and it, it didn't go down well. No, no, no. And... Um... Yeah, that that was part of the thinking, really, to, to kind of give everyone, you know, some some time away from that. There might have been a bit of a kickback from kind of Billy's perspective, obviously going to local rivals, but also, you know, leave, leaving an opportunity to get a team promoted as well. Um, so we must have, and and I've, I think I've said it before to you, Craig. I, I genuinely feel that was Billy through and through in terms of stepping aside and going, there you go, Skip. You've 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 started this from the kind of youth team that came through. I'm now going to step to one side. Yes, going to Notts County, but there you go. It's kind of carte blanche to go right. Take take the lads home if you like. You know, to finish the job that you started, and that's a very kind of noble thing for Billy to do. And that was Billy through and through. Was it easy the fact that Notts County weren't in the same division? Do you think? Yeah, I mean. I, I can't even remember any rivalry back in the early noughties. I know it did develop when we started playing against them a bit more and they always uh, managed to sneak a goal against Notts County, which didn't go down too well when I signed for them back in uh, 05, 06. But, um, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't their, their most favourite player, let's put it like that. But, yeah, I, I don't think it, it was really on our radar, really. I know we had a few good battles in youth team. I can remember playing against the likes, you know, Paul Heffernan and... Uh, a few of the others from a youth team perspective, but first team there was never really that on-field rivalry, if you like, with Notts County from from my perspective anyway. You come back um, from your little joint abroad, and your first game under Stuart Watkiss as first team manager, um, as the man in charge, if you like, was uh, a trip to to South End away, a one nil defeat, jet lag. We're going to put that down to. Was that away down at South End? Yeah. Yeah. Tw- was- 12th, 12th of Jan 2002 uh, is the first game I've got on my records after the um, the Leicester game. So that would have been um, Skip's first game in charge. Yeah. So, yeah, a 1-0 defeat away at Southend. Um, so we we're going to put that down to jet lag. I think so, yeah. Yeah, all the fact that we were down Southend on the Friday night having fish and chips or whatever. <laughs> Trying to trying to trying to get all this uh, alcohol out of system, but no, I, yeah, that's a bit of a probably bat. But I think Southend were doing quite well back then as well. Yeah, Brentley uh, had a, quite a few decent players, so it wasn't an easy challenge. And the travelling as well, there was no overnight stops back then, you know, Craig. In terms of you know a four or five hour schlep down to um, down to Southend uh, on a coach, then straight off the coach. Probably did have a pre match back then, but. Um, we still had to play kind of ninety minutes after a long journey, so yeah, the the overnight stops we, we'd used all the budget in Portugal, so there were no <laughs> with overnight stop. Oh, I can just imagine that first day as uh, Skipper's manager knocking on uh, Mr. Haslam's door and saying, uh, 
Uh, we've got South End away coming up. Any chance of a cheeky? No. <laughs> not, a, not a chance. I, I find that quite intriguing. So there was no overnight stops at all. Was it, or, or were they, was it very rare? Would you maybe get, I don't know, one a season? Because I, I think now of the trips that Mansfield make, and I would probably say that 85, maybe even 90, 95% of the away games they play, they'll have an overnighter either before or after. No, there was none. Uh, well, I think Plymouth, we, we stopped overnight. Uh, but that literally, I can remember travelling up to Hartlepool. Uh, I know it's not that much of a, a trek. That's a two and a half hour journey. That was on a, a double-decker bus, believe it or not. I think it was kind of <laughs> rented it from like Redferns. You know them school ones? Yeah. Green school, double-decker. Yeah. I think we went to, up to Hartlepool on one of them. Christ. Uh, and, and, and yeah, that, Plymouth was the only overnight start. That's, that's the fact. Wow, that's that's so strange to think about. Now, like that's another thing which you about modern day football, which is so different to to how yeah. it was then. It, it, it's yeah. so strange. Now, I guess that's pretty much, you know, why uh, home form was key because, uh, you know, when you're having these long journeys, it does absolutely take it out of you. And squads back then were way smaller than than what they are now as well. So, you know, th- there's not this whole thing of right, I'm going to rest four or five of you for, for the next home game, you're not going to do this journey because it's going to make you uncomfortable with an injury which you're carrying. you literally just got to get on with it. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think fans really kind of get that side of things in terms of, you know, how important it is to have an overnight stop, how important it is to have a pre-match meal. I don't think we, we had that many pre-match meals back then either, you, you know. So, so yeah, it, that, that preparation now has obviously come into the game a lot more and, like you say, stags now, even for a two-hour journey, is probably an overnight stop. Whereas us, two-hour journey was quite a short, short trek for us. Uh, so yeah. And then, of course, after the uh, South End game, um, where you've sobered up after your fish and chips, you've been beaten one nil. You're, you're back on UK soil, back on the right time zone. Fortunately, then um, a few days later, you're back home at home to Hartlepool United, a three-nil win in front of uh, just shy of four and a half thousand. Um, what memories do you have from that game? Because that would have been the first home game under Stuart Watkiss as well. Was the, the support still there for him? And did it still feel like that there was a sense of something could happen with the fans despite losing uh, a manager who was very well respected by a lot of Stags fans for, for many a year? Yeah, absolutely. No. And, I, and I think that was just, you know, Skip get, getting to know Obviously, being a manager, you know, being in the being at Field Mill as a first team manager, um, trying to put in a performance in against, yeah, a, a lowly, a lowly team like like Hartlepool and um, getting that first win, which was, which was vital. Really, I can't even. I don't think I played that game. I must have been spare man or something. But the, the, the game's not 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 too far. Although I do think that. Tony Lormer, who um, was with the Stags earlier on in that season, went to Hartlepool, um, and and I believe he he played. And I don't know whether he scored a penalty um, in that game. No, was we kept three nil, so kept a clean sheet in that one. So yeah, yeah, so yeah, but Tony Lormer coming back to uh, to the Stags. It's a it's a it's a it's a good one. And one thing which interests me as well, I'm looking through some of the the, the names and stuff within that squad, and like I said, I can't remember too many uh, of them um, because it was the first real time in fact it was probably around you know sort of January February time where I first started going so 
got bullied at school quite a Laura lot. Hunt. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was. To be fair, um, I got bullied at school a lot. I had obviously really bushy ginger hair, I had big Deirdre Barlow glasses, and I had a temper shorter than uh, than anything you can imagine. So really? yeah, I was a massive target for bullies. Didn't really have a great home life uh, either. To be fair, so. Uh, school was a place where I used to take out a, a lot of anger and I was an easy target and I just remember never really liking football as a kid um, but I, for, for whatever reason I was taken along to a Stags game and can't for the life remember who it was against but I just remember really really enjoying the atmosphere and speaking to to people and uh, feeling confident about it and it was then where it started to, to build and build and one of my first memories um, you know when you first identify someone as a hero that you that you know you want to be and you want to emulate um, and I'll talk about this when he's uh, when he's on the episode himself was actually Pilks I remember yeah. watching him pull off a ridiculous save and the crowd going absolutely like celebrating and, and applauding and thinking I want to be that guy I want to be the one who dive, dives around and from that point onwards I used to like have a little small group of mates I always used to be the one that went in goal and stuff and remember that but uh some of the names that I'm looking through, these are experienced names who help helped us get over the line. People sort of say, you know, Scott Sellers, huge, huge pull for us in that season. Only played, started five games, scored one goal, but his influence yeah. was absolutely incredible. And it's the same for two or three of them. And a lot of that came through Skip in, in January, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Just to acknowledge that, you know, the young lads didn't have experience to kind of yeah manage the pressure of uh being in the hierarchy in the top uh, um top 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 six and needed someone in there just to add that bit of experience bit of kind of stability so we brought in scott sellers and i think he brought in uh, david kelly as well um again another kind of international footballer uh, who, who's, who's been about a bit and two heroes of mine really from kind of watching Premier League years and um, all you know watching Premier League games all through the 90s they were really kind of big heroes for me so to, to see them walk through the door was a was a big um, yeah a, a big thing for myself as a, as a as a young player. How pivotal was it bringing those players in to, to get you over the line because from a mentality point of view, as the season goes on, you sort of get yourself solidified in terms of a league position. Like you say, that pressure will start to slowly simmer away. So you need something. You need somebody to come in and give you that bit of nous. Yeah. And, you, and you know, obviously David Kelly's a, um, a centre-forward as well. So from that perspective, he used to talk to me or he used to talk me through every single game I used to play. Up front. I can remember we played... Um, I think it was Lincoln on a on a Tuesday night when we won four one, and that was one of the big kind of not turning points, but a bit of a right. Yeah, we can actually do it here. We went to Lincoln, big local rivals, and and tonked them four one, and it was such a good performance. We had loads of good night performances under the floodlights, but that one away from from home at Lincoln, one four one. I don't think I scored, but I, I remember a lot a lot of fans saying. It was one of the best performances in a stag shirt that night, and we all seemed to click. And that was um, that was a big part of you know David Kelly or Ned and um, yeah Scotty Sellers um, in terms of um, starting the ball rolling really in terms of a running. And I'm sure we'll talk more about those players uh, when we get other players on uh, over the course of the series as well. Let's move to the final um, four games of the season towards the back end of the season. We had 
through a little bit of a rough patch. Um, five games without um, a winning, which included four defeats uh, in there. So it was going a little bit sort of to, to the wire, and it did go to the wire. But you got yourself back in the in the in the side, and uh, three goals in the last four games, which helped us get us uh, over the line. You must look look back at that with really fond memories, none more so than the uh, penultimate home game uh, against Cheltenham, the uh, the promotion rivals. Yeah, yeah, um, probably the best game. <laughs> That I've been involved in, to be honest, in terms of the atmosphere, the occasion, um, but also the kind of win or bust, really, in terms of that result. Because if Cheltenham had got a point, I think they would um, they would have either gone up or or or, or been above us to to, to go up um, and been in the kind of driving seat for promotion. So for me, um, yeah. Must have been 13,000 fans packed into that stadium that night. A massive atmosphere. The whole town turned up. Um, I think ITV were there as well, not to broadcast it live, but to do a mm. an extra highlights package. Um, and yeah, we. Uh, I think the ball came in for that first first header. I've kind of beat one of the defender at the back stick, come off a post, and Chris is sniffing obviously like he does. Uh, knocked it in. They've equalised. And it's going into the, the final 20 minutes or so. Bobby's uh, shanked a shot. I've stuck a leg out and it's gone gone in. And yeah, what a feeling. What a feeling. Now, we could delve into the last few games, but we're not going to do. We're going to save that for when we've got some of the other uh, the teammates on and things like that. But um, who are you looking forward to, to reconnecting with over this? Because there must be so many memories when you start talking and when you start thinking about those games, especially when you have... You know those teammates who are around you to to, to bounce off and, and remember those those things with. I can sit here and ask you all the questions under, under the sun, but it's only really truly when you start talking to them that those memories are going to start flooding back. So, who are you looking forward to uh, to reconnecting with? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Bobby. Obviously, we were in a car school together for two or three years. Spent a lot of time with each other, and he's a real, real top bloke. So, I'm looking forward to reconnecting with Bobby. Um, Pilts as well. He's from my village. Um, so growing up in 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 my village, Pilks was a, a bit of a hero for me because obviously he went on to play for Manchester United. He actually used to do all of the um, all of my kind of Sunday league presentations. So he's handed me a trophy or two through my time. So Pilks is definitely one I'm looking at reconnecting with, and we were together at Notts County as well. So um, yeah, I mean Robbo as well. What a top bloke, Les Robinson. The funniest man you'll ever meet, you know. I've got he's he's got some cracking stories, and he was proper a proper character in that dressing room, um, and also chords as well. Um, part of a car school, a nice, nice, nice bloke. Um, I know we saw each other. I can't remember what it was now. Like a charity game um, for Reese Day, I think it was a few years. Back yes, I remember that well. Yeah, yeah. That was that must have been ten years ago. Yeah, it was. It was the end of the 2011-12 season. Yeah, Mansfield had just lost out. Or no, was it? Or was it the promotion season? I'm struggling to remember. It, it will either be 2011-2012 or 2012-13. I've got a feeling it was 12-13. Um, yeah, I think it might have been 13, the summer of 2013. Yeah, it was because I remember... Yeah, I remember like players like Lee Stevenson, who was with the Stags at the time, playing for us, and he was the promotion-winning side. And uh, Alan Murray at the keeper at the time, he played outfield for the second half. And uh, yeah. I remember Pilks, and there was a I think uh, Reese 
had a penalty and missed the first one and the ref made him uh, retake it. I remember that game uh, very, very well, actually. I, yeah, I enjoyed that. And uh, another top bloke, Reece Day, as well. There's so many characters from, from down, the, down the years that we can reconnect yeah. with. So even, even after this 0102 series is done, we need to dig up some more. We need to get into that black book of contacts and get, uh, get, uh, get in touch, don't we? Yeah, de- yeah definitely. Yeah. <coughs> have to reconnect. Absolutely. I'm sure there's one name as well which Stags fans will be screaming at me to uh, to ask you to reconnect with. And that's a certain man who's overseas uh, in, I think, New Zealand the last time we heard of him, a certain Mr. Greenacre. Don't worry, Stags fans. Messages are being exchanged and we're working <laughs> on something. So uh, don't worry. It will all come good. Now, that's all we've got time for in terms of talking about things on the pitch in that particular year. You're going to be the co-host for the rest of the series. We've got some great guests lined up, um, some great conversations as well. So there'll be much more we can delve into. But you know from the last time you were on our Stag Stories series that we love a bit of competition and we love a quiz here. So as you're going to be co-host for, for the rest of the series, you've got to set the standard so we're going to do a brand new quiz um, on the show, and it's going to be uh, called the um, the Mansfield Town, A Question of Sport. So it's our brand new quiz, uh, which will see our guests face nine questions themed around sport, the letters of which will spell out the word Mansfield. So the first will begin with an M, and then the second's an A, and then so on and so on, so you get the word Mansfield. Simplistic, I think. As long as you give me the, uh, the acronym for and I'm work that out, that out for myself and I should be alright I think don't worry it all starts with the questions are like which M which A so uh, that oh, will yeah. yeah as long as we work that out yeah because I know some particular footballers we won't mention any names but there'll be some that struggle to spell Mansfield right yeah I think I'll be one of them to be honest with you <laughs> Uh, it's going to be uh, up against the clock the person who gets the most right in the quickest time will be crowned the winner as like last time a wrong answer is plus five seconds, but a pass is plus ten. So it's worth a go, even if you don't know. I am determined to make that a catchphrase. That is going to happen over this series. Uh, and then at the end of it, there will be a chance for you to double your points by solving a Stag's anagram. But the choice is entirely up to you. First and foremost, are you up for giving it a go? You don't really have much choice, but I thought I'd be courteous and ask you anyway, to be honest. But Yeah, let's go. Okay, so... Uh... Right then, uh, as I say, um, it spells out the word Mansfield. I'll start the clock before I ask the first question and so on and so on. So, in three, two, one, let's play. Which M won the US Open in 2011, his first major championship victory? It can be a surname as well. So, which M won the US Open in 2011, his first major championship victory? Have a Murray. Which A is nicknamed the Hurricane, a four-time World Snooker Championship finalist? Which A? Which A? I haven't got a clue. I don't I hate snooker. Have <laughs> a random... Passed. Always passed. Uh, which N could be described as a former horsehead-wearing footballer and in, 20, uh, in 2008 became the first pro footballer to appear on Countdown? He's one of your former teammates. He's one of my heroes. Neil McKenzie. Which S is signalled by an umpire holding aloft both arms and is also traditionally the number worn by a central defender in football? Six. Which F is the part of the body where you'd find your metatarsal? Four. Which I is the term used uh, to describe a cricket team's uh, time at the wicket whilst batting? Which I is the term used to describe a cricket team's time at the wicket whilst batting? Innings. 
Which E was the first African country to ever qualify for a World Cup? Ethiopia. Which L owns the long? Uh, which L own has the longest winning streak in NBA history? Which L has the longest winning streak in NBA history? LA Lakers. And finally, which D won gold alongside Matty Lee at the 2020 Summer Olympics in the men's synchronized diving? I know it, but it's just not coming. That pass. I'll stop the clock there. Oh, dear. How do you think you did? Not well. <laughs> Let's have a little look. So, have a little count up of these, to be fair. I mean, I think you did better than last time when you were on an, it. And last time it was questions about you. No, I got the best score on that one. Oh, no, you did. Yeah, and you the... absolutely smashed it out of the park, <laughs> didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, people were complaining that the questions were too easy. Oh, were they? Yeah. Yeah. No. I think this one they were tricky. They were, and when you're on under a bit of pressure, five rights um, in a total time, including penalties of two minutes thirty-five. So I'll oh, go through yeah. the wrong answers. Uh, which M won the U.S. Open in 2011? His first major championship victory was McIlroy, Rory McIlroy. Oh, golf. Yeah. Well, US Open could be could be tennis as well, couldn't it? Oh, I suppose so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm blaming the question there. I mean, yeah, you might have we might have to have a steward's inquiry on that one. I might hold my hands up slightly to that. Um, which uh, which A is nicknamed the Hurricane, four-time World Snooker Championship finalist, and you went, I hate snooker. It's Alex Hurricane Higgins. I want to know that anyway. Uh, Mackey, you got right. Six, you got right. Foot, you got right. Innings, you got right. Uh, Egypt was the first African country to ever qualify for a World Cup. Is Ethiopia actually in Africa? Not a clue. I hated geography. <laughs> I'll be honest, geography and maths are my two weakest subjects, and both of which used to be on Tuesday afternoons. So guess where I was most Tuesday afternoons? Yeah, damn stags. Exactly. So uh, wagging it is, is is not the term. And then the last one, uh, which D, you got it at the end. It was Tom Daly. Yeah, always look on the bright side of life, as they say. Right, well, we'll be chatting to you over the next eight weeks or so. We've got plenty of guests lined up as well. Um, usually we give the last word um, to, to our guests in terms of uh, their memories and stuff. We're going to save yours for the end of the season, but we've got one vital question to finish on. Andy White, what's your favourite biscuit? I'm a big cookie man. Like a nice chocolate covered cookie. Oh, a chocolate covered one. So we're not talking Chocol we're not talking Maryland, we're talking one of the special like, Oh yeah, yeah. No, 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 not Maryland, no, no. It's gonna be one of those, you know, Foxes. No, no, no. They come in a pack of five from Morrison's, you know, the special ones that you know, either white chocolate, raspberry or um, chocolate covered. It's a big cookie. That's a that big thing. shout, right? I'm gonna write this down so uh, big chocolate covered cookie. We'll have to remember these because at the end of the series, we'll have a little league table on uh, who's got the yeah. best biscuit. Other than that, that's been absolutely excellent. Um, we've got Barry Statham up with us uh, next week. Just for a little bit of a tease for our listeners, what can we expect from Baz? Well, I think Baz, obviously, ex-military, um, very, very professional in what he does. Um, but also got a real kind of yeah skill in, in, in 
and how we how we support um, individuals, footballers, um, recover from injury, come out physically and mentally. So yeah, it's, um, it'll be a good it'll be a good good show. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee, and terms apply. See McDonald's.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is proud to be part of the Talk Sport Fan Network. Talk Sport, powered by fans.